shrine gleamed in the winter sun as I took my place in the queue of pilgrims waiting to pay homage. The atmosphere bubbled with excitement, the anticipation of ecstasy, which called the faithful to flock here from all over the world. This modern house of worship was dedicated to the glory of its God in just 2007. In fact, the deity it houses is a mere youngster, its incarnation occurring just 132 years ago. Yet despite its brief life, this idol has won billions of devotees from every nation, tribe and tongue. Worshippers often refer to their saviour as the real thing, for they have tasted and seen that their Lord is good. And now, in downtown Atlanta, in the corner of Centennial Olympic Park, proudly rubbing shoulders with the 20-year ghosts of the world's best athletes, I was visiting this place of prayer, this temple of tacky, this mind-blowing tribute to instant gratification. The world of Coca-Cola, it's called. And it really was like going to church. I had to queue to get in. Okay, so that bit's not like going to church. (laughs) And it cost me $16. In fact, this doesn't sound like going to church at all, does it? But once I'd stepped through the gates of salvation and into the courts of praise, I was raptured into a transcendental world, captivated by inspiring narrative and beloved icons. The Sacraments of Sugar. (laughs) Emblazoned on the wall of the narthex was the verse, Coke refreshes body, mind and spirit. And an ambassador, for that is what the staff are titled, called out in a loud voice that once we had drunk Coke, we would, and I quote, never thirst again. (laughs) I learned about John Pemberton, peace and blessings upon him, who in his Atlanta pharmacy invented this elixir. I discovered that there are only a handful of people on this entire globe who know the divine secret, the recipe of Coke. And although I am a sinner unworthy of receiving this secret formula, I and my fellow pilgrims were admitted into the Holy of Holies to behold the safe in which it is housed. There it was, six feet away, behind a rope, under the constant surveillance of security guards, lest we should touch it by mistake and be struck down. We then sat in a small theatre, enthralled as we watched the history of their evangelistic campaigns. We even sang along, joyfully proclaiming that we too would like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. No sadness or sin were allowed in this pagoda of perfection, including in the telling of the story. Rather foolishly, I asked an ambassador whether it is true that the original recipe contained cocaine, only to be told that this was an old wives' tale and untrue. 
when I naively inquired why then the word coca appears in the name, he replied that it had something to do with caffeine. This was a sanitised, sterilised, caramelised vision of life in all its make-believe perfection. By the way, if you're listening to this online and you work for the Coca-Cola company, especially if you're in the legal department, let me remind you, you are listening to sermons from St. Paul's Episcopal Church, Billings, Montana. With me, Father Stephen Higgins. We are used to having a nice afternoon at a museum, rising to the finale of exiting through the gift shop. So, in our over-merchandised, over-commercialised, product-placed culture, (laughs) it was only a matter of time before the gift shop became so full of itself and barged its way from the exit to take over the whole glorious museum from beginning to end. The world of Coca-Cola is what happens when the gift shop takes over the attraction. I responded in a way that the creators probably didn't want or expect. Too old to believe the hype, too cynical to be evangelised, too offended to be won over by the grandiosity. I was not their ideal visitor. Even though the video of 1970s multicultural hippies standing on a hill singing about growing apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves did bathe me with warm nostalgia. I didn't feel anger, not real anger, not the anger that assaults your sense of right and wrong and compels you to trash the place. When the gift shop took over the attraction, I was passive. When the gift shop took over the attraction, I was content to pay my money, sing the songs and sample the 80 varieties of the product from around the world. When the gift shop took over the attraction, I just wasn't Jesus. When the gift shop took over the attraction that day in Jerusalem, he released the animals, he made a whip, he threw the furniture. Yes, you heard that right. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that Jesus. The one who calmed waves and silenced winds, who spoke serenely to people trapped in sin, who touched delicately the hand of a dead girl and warmed her back to life, who sat little children on his knee and whispered stories of wonder. That Jesus, the one who would surely like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. He who calmed storms did not quell the one in his own heart that day when the gift shop took over the attraction. Is this, Jesus, the real thing? Well, not if you want a syrupy, saccharine, zero-calorie Jesus. One who doesn't have strong opinions about anything, who turns a blind eye to injustice, a deaf ear to the pain, a cold shoulder to the victims. 
If you want that Jesus, the one who smiles sweetly at inequality, nods pleasantly when goodness is punished, and rocks himself to sleep while evil prospers, then you're in the wrong Bible story. Actually, you're in the wrong Bible. If you want to sip the insipid Jesus, go somewhere else. But don't come here. Don't come to the temple in the run-up to Passover. Don't visit the attraction the day the gift shop took over. They all came that day, thousands of them. Visitors from the country, pilgrims from every province. And so they should. It was Passover, and tradition demanded that faithful Jews travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice an animal, a snow-white turtle dove, as it happens. That was what the poorest people surrendered. Those with more resources offered a lamb. And they did it to remember, to recall a miracle so marvellous, so spectacular, so carbonated and caffeinated, that even though it took place countless years earlier, they were still remembering, still marvelling, still revelling. That great night when God led the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And here comes pilgrim Jesus to do what the law required. That day the gift shop took over the attraction. And this was a thundering attraction. The entire temple measured some 870 feet squared. The actual place of worship took up about a tenth of the total area. The rest of the space was made up of outer courts. So that is a football field plus the sidelines and the stands. Oh, and the parking lots. To the uninitiated, the people whose thermometers were insensitive to the heat of injustice... Everything in the courts of the attraction appeared normal that day when the gift shop took over. Selling animals, you see, was necessary. These pilgrims had to offer animals without blemish or stain. And some of them had come hundreds of miles. So they were not going to bring their own animal. No, simpler and easier to buy one at the temple. So supply rose up to meet demand. The merchants who staffed the gift shop of the attraction were providing a necessary service. So too those money changers. Uh, They were important. This morning uh, we've read the Ten Commandments twice. Uh, And number two, you remember, prevented the Jewish people from crafting an image. An image of God or a person or an animal. But at the attraction, that caused a problem. Because Roman coins bore the image of Caesar. So the faithful Jew would not and could not walk into the temple precincts of all places and trade with regular currency. They had to change it for temple coins that had no graven image on them. So the money changers, changing the blasphemous Roman coins into imageless money, are just doing a necessary job. But there was more than honest trading going on on that day when the gift shop took over the attraction. There was also profiteering. 
The free market wasn't free. Rather like trying to buy a Pepsi in Atlanta, the visitors to the temple had only one option. Pilgrims had to buy livestock for the sacrifice, and they had to change their blasphemous money, and there were unscrupulous traders who were ready to relieve them of their excess wealth. I've read that the cost of a sacrificial animal inside the temple precincts was 15 times the cost in the regular marketplace. When the gift shop takes over the attraction, exhortation comes along for the ride. The other reason for Jesus' anger to bubble to the surface was the exact location of these transactions. We know it was in the temple precincts, the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles. The Jerusalem attraction contained three parts, each divided for a different group of people. And the Gentiles were confined to the outer courts, the very place where the traders set up shop. So Gentiles coming to worship were forced to do so in a cross between a cattle market and a currency exchange when God's chosen people strode into a more suitable, worshipful surrounding. Long before apartheid and Jim Crow, Jesus threw tables at the evil of segregation. Anger is our fickle friend. It is our friend. So take your can, shake it up, and pull the ring. Only mind why you do it, how you do it, when you do it, and at whom you do it. In the words of Aristotle, anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person, and to the right degree, and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. Anger can be a powerful energizer for good. Righteous anger, holy anger, Jesus anger, forces us off the couch and onto the street to pray to write, to march, to work for change. It's anger that inspired the prophets of old to speak truth to power, Jesus in the temple to overturn tables, and men and women in these days who say enough when the innocent suffer, when goodness is desecrated, when justice is denied, when corruption rules, and when the gift shop has thrown off all restraint and rampaged its way over the heart of all that's sacred. Now there's another type of anger, the kind that wakes up and tastes the cola when it doesn't get its own way, or when it feels slighted, or when it's stuck in a traffic jam, or when someone in a call centre is having a bad day and is keeping it on the phone longer than it wants. But that's not worthy of us. The people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, 
who have drunk the living waters of Jesus, who have imbibed the Holy Spirit and have grown the fruit of patience, who have sipped the blood of Christ and been changed into his likeness. Will the real thing please stand up? And so may you feel the heart of Jesus that beats in time to the cries of the child, that pumps with love for the plight of the old, that swells and bubbles and froths for the suffering of women and men. And then throw some tables. Amen.